0: Oh, Bill Warner is now going to bring us our reading from Luke chapter eight, 18,
1: 18 to 30. Thank you. Gosh, isn't it lovely to be back, even in such <laughs> strange ways. So this is Luke 18, 18 to 30. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honour your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. When he heard this he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who have heard this asked who then can be saved? Jesus replied what is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him we have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life.
0: Thanks, Isabel. Let's come to God now in prayer. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you for your goodness that you are Perfectly wise and loving and generous and merciful. It's impossible for you to do anything wrong. We acknowledge that we so often fail to live up to your standards. And even when we may outwardly lead respectable lives, you are aware of the sin in our hearts. Please forgive us for our sinful thoughts and deeds. All those things that we've thought and done that we know we shouldn't have done. And those things we haven't done that we know we should have done. Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, create in us a pure heart, we pray. And where we attempted tempted to worship other things or people more than you, please remind us of the full eternal satisfaction that we have in you. And that nothing this world offers can come anywhere near that. We pray for our nation at this time as we seem to be entering a second wave and as financial support starts to be withdrawn. Lord, we pray you would have mercy in all those who are struggling, physically, mentally, emotionally, financially. Enable us to be your instruments of grace. May you cause people to call out to you for help and turn to you in repentance and faith. We pray for our church family and all those who are are struggling because of physical or mental illness, because of loneliness or isolation, because of the stress of their many responsibilities at work or at home. May you reassure them of your love and sustain them with your strength. We pray for those grieving the loss of loved ones, that they may know your comfort at this time. Lord, we pray for our students at the start of this new academic year. Pray for all the students, those returning as well, that they will be able to engage with the the new teaching formats. As we pray for their physical safety, Lord, so we pray for their spiritual health. That those who are not yet following Jesus, would put their trust in him. And those who are already Christians, would grow in their faith and make the most of the resources available to them. Father, we bring you our financial offerings as part of our worship to express our gratitude for all you've given us through Jesus, praying they will be used to further your kingdom. we pray for Colin as he comes to preach shortly, that you would enable him to be faithful to your word and clear in his teaching, that through it we will be built up into the church you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.
2: Oh, good morning. for uh, for many years I was involved in missions in northern Italy trying to bring the gospel to the people of Italy and people often would ask why would you go to Italy isn't it already a Christian country after all and you know there's a big church there in Rome which many people know about and so surely why would you go there what would be the point if uh, the Italians are supposed to be well versed in Christianity well, you might say that until you start to do some research, and then you begin to discover that those who attend Mass regularly are between 5 and 7% of the population, depending on which source you draw on. And then you look at the evangelical statistics, uh, if you look at Operation World online, you'll find that 1.1% of the population are evangelical. That's 1.1% of 60 million people are evangelical. And that's from really from a a broad research point of view. But really when you get up close and personal and you speak to Italians one-on-one, there's a phrase that you hear really often. And it's this one. God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who help themselves. It's a phrase allegedly created by the English political political, uh, theorist Algernon, Sydney and later used by Benjamin Franklin in 1736 God helps those who help themselves and never mind those from a Roman Catholic background isn't this just a popular phrase for religious and apparently irreligious people alike that I will do my part and in the end hopefully it will be enough to get me to heaven whether I believe in that or not, that God helps those who help themselves. It's the thought that really we have to prove ourselves in some form or fashion to show that we've done enough to God, that we do our bit and he will do his. But we have to ask, is that right? Is that true? Well, we'll look at that, that thought from three perspectives this morning. Looking at the passage, first of all we'll see, only God is good. Secondly, put Jesus first. And thirdly, it is impossible with man, but possible with God. And so firstly, only God is good. It's not exactly clear who the ruler is in the passage mentioned in verse 18. He could have been a Roman or a Jewish ruler, but he's probably... A synagogue ruler because he has a discussion with jesus regarding the law and the first thing he asks him is good teacher what must i do to inherit eternal life to which jesus responds in verse 19 why do you call me good jesus answered no one is good except god alone The ruler is trying to understand what rules he needs to follow in order to inherit eternal life. What things he needs to do. And the response of Jesus is initially quite shocking. Is he denying his divinity? Is he saying that he is not fully divine? That he is not the son of God? Well, no. He is pointing really to the ruler's understanding of what good is. Jesus is really saying to him, Do you think you know what goodness is? You haven't got a clue what goodness really is. Jesus knows the man's heart and asks questions to really illuminate his thinking and bring clarity to his thoughts. And so he asks him about the second half of the Ten Commandments in verse 20. The commandments not relating to loving God, but loving your neighbor. And so Jesus takes them through the commandments in verse 20. Those are, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not give false testimony or lie, and honor your father and mother. Jesus tests the man to help him gain clarity in his thinking. If the ruler is really sincere, he would acknowledge that he is, okay, not lived up to all these commandments he has surely fallen short in some of them but his response in verse 21 is ultimately a proud one all these I have kept since I was a boy in other words yeah I'm good all these commandments that you've laid before me Jesus well I've kept them I've never broken them, even since I was a child. And really, in our own lives, it's one thing to see someone who knows they've done wrong and is aware of it. It shows some sense of self-awareness. But it's quite another when someone someone either won't admit or are completely unaware of of the wrong that they have done. It's really quite a sad thing to see someone who is so blind in their own sin that they're completely unaware of how morally bankrupt they really are. And it's only really by observing God and who he is that it truly gives a better picture of who we are. And John Calvin, the reformer, speaks about it in this way by saying... It is evident that man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself. It's truly only when we consider who God is that we know who we are. And as Calvin mentions, he goes on to say, because... Ultimately, because of our innate pride, we always seem to ourselves just and upright and wise and holy until we are convinced by clear evidence of our injustice, vileness, folly and impurity. Convinced, however, that we are not if we look to ourselves only and not to the Lord also. He being the only standard by the application of which this conviction can be produced. The only way that we understand who we are is if we know who God is. And the question being posed to the ruler, and indeed to each one of us this morning, is this one. Do we really know what goodness is? Do we really know what goodness is? If we were to stare into the law of God, would our response be, yeah, I'm good? Or would, would we be honest with ourselves and recognize we're not the good people that we might claim to be? That when we compare ourselves in the light of the law of God, that we are sinners who stand before a holy God, a holy, perfect and good God. That I am not the good person that I might claim to be because only God is good. And yet the ruler does not acknowledge this. Instead he believes that he is good and therefore will gain eternal life. But the first, or the second challenge is really to put Jesus first. And so Jesus has one last challenge for him, one last test. In verse 22, he says to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And what is his response? Verse 23, when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus' question to the ruler is, Who is your God? Who is your God? Jesus is not his Lord and Savior. Money is. Jesus asked him about the second half of the Ten Commandments to see if he understands the very first commandment in Exodus. Exodus 20, verse 2. You shall have no other gods before me. God is not his savior from his sins. Money is. God is not the master of his life. Money is. And so he went away sad. Jesus isn't asking him. He isn't saying to him, if you sell everything you have, you will inherit the kingdom of God. But he's probing his heart. And the ruler lives out the words of Jesus when he says in Matthew what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul and the ruler sacrifices his soul at the altar of wealth and maybe really in a a more subtle way that's perhaps us today maybe we think that money or a successful career would be the thing that would solve every problem in our life that it would be our Lord and our Savior. Only to realize that the more money you have, the more money you think you need. Worshipping wealth never satisfies and always demands more. And it can be really subtle, very subtle. If I could just have a bit more, not a lot more, just a bit more. If I could just have a bit more than I could have a slightly bigger house or a slightly better car or a slightly better holiday I don't want a lot more just a bit or it could be something else other than wealth that is actually taking the primary position in your heart it could be good things that ultimately become God things It could be a relationship as you live for that person and not primarily for Jesus. Or maybe you're single and thinking of making a a compromise to go and date a non-Christian. It could be your job as it consumes your mind and your meditations every moment of the waking day. It could be the pursuit of pleasure and leisure as you look forward to that thing just weighing on your heart all the time thinking of it. meditating on it throughout the day throughout the week or it could even be family that takes the the primary place in your heart now don't get me wrong many of these things, some of these things are very good things but they can't become God things the question is have have they gone from being a good thing to a God thing in your life Jesus is asking, as he's asking us, who is your real God? Is it Jesus or is it something or someone else? Who has your primary affection for your heart? Is it really Jesus? If someone was to look at your life, would they say that person lives and loves Jesus? Or would it be something else that takes that primary position? I think we need to examine our hearts this morning and ask ourselves, is that true of us? Who or what takes primary position in my heart? Because as Jesus says in verse 24, when it comes especially to wealth, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's hard because there's a tendency to be self-reliant. The tendency not to look to God for salvation, but to look to personal accomplishment for salvation. The danger of relying on wealth to save is a real one, because the harder, the more wealth we have, the harder it is to trust in Jesus for our salvation and not our own merits. And how hard is it? Well, as Jesus says in verse 25, these striking words indeed it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God speaking to a neighbor the other night they said well maybe the eye of the needle is a place um, and maybe the you know, going through the camel and the eye of the needle that's a place but then you look at the context that's not what he's saying it is really shocking because the people clearly know what he's talking about The impossibility of it. And so they ask him in verse 26, Well, who can be saved? Who then can be saved? Because the rich are supposed to be the ones that are blessed. It really is a stark warning for us today. For those with much wealth, the temptation is to trust in it. And not on Jesus. To look to your wealth and your work and not the wealth and work of Jesus whether we have a little or whether we have a lot we ultimately have to put Jesus in the primary position in our hearts and in our lives and the terrifying thing is the image that Jesus uses in verse 25 the image of a camel going through the eye of a needle points to just how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God it's impossible impossible with man but possible with God and as we look at Peter in verse 28 Peter almost repeats the words of Jesus to the rich ruler when Jesus says in verse 22 sell everything you have and then come follow me and Peter says in verse 28 well we have left all we had to come follow you and the immense sacrifice of Peter was stark as he gave up everything to follow Jesus but the interesting thing is, we look at what Peter says, we don't actually know the tone in which he's saying it is he saying it with a proud heart look at what I've done or is he saying it with a despairing one oh, I've left everything to follow you and his motivation in leaving everything well actually as we look at it I look at the verse, in verse 29 we see why he has given up or really ultimately Jesus reassures him because the answer to Peter's cries found in verse 29 where Jesus says for the sake of the kingdom for the sake of the kingdom now maybe you're thinking as Peter did I've made many sacrifices as a Christian and I've left a lot of things behind. I've made a lot of tough decisions as a Christian for the sake of the kingdom. And the question perhaps that comes into your mind is, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Isn't there an easier way than this? Because sometimes the Christian, heart, the Christian life is really hard to make decisions which go contrary to everybody else. It seems like it's much harder or much easier even, to follow everyone else rather than following Jesus. That it's really quite hard. And so, ultimately, as we look at what Jesus says in verse 29 and 30, if you leave everything for the sake of the kingdom of God, then you will receive many times, not only in this age, or not only in the age to come, I should say, in heaven, but also in this age, as God will give you a church family as you will now have brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers and little children who belong to the family of God God gives us family in this age as we look forward to eternity with Jesus and with his people and so we may ask is it worth it? because it's really hard but what is impossible with man is possible with God because Jesus Christ has made a way for us he bore all our sins upon the cross that we might not need to prove ourselves anymore because he has done the work for us and we can inherit the kingdom of God as a child receives their inheritance from their father as a free gift. A gift. And to receive the gift of salvation is as plain as an A, B, and a C. A, admit, admit that you'll never be good enough. Only God is good. Admit that you have loved other gods other than Jesus. Admit that you'll never do enough because Jesus has done it all. Believe believe that Jesus has paid it all. Believe that Jesus has paid for all your sins completely on the cross. And then lastly, commit. Commit to putting Jesus first. Commit to putting him first and following him wherever he calls you. To letting Jesus transform your heart. By His Spirit, through His Word, that the Word would do its work in our lives, that we might have Jesus Christ as the King of our lives, every single day. And thinking about inheritance and fathers and sons, it made me think a little bit about last week, when my, uh, or two weeks ago I should say, when my, when my dad was doing the Bible reading, and my induction. The only problem was when he said, I'd like to say a few words. I got my face mask and wanted to pull it all the way over my face, dying of embarrassment. Um, And so I thought at the time it was embarrassing, but I was reminded of just how much the Lord has done in his life. And for for him, he was a policeman for 35 years and pursued that as a career as he really wanted to help people. To lock up the bad guys, as he would say, and keep the good guys safe. And so he spent a large chunk of his life helping people, doing an honourable work and advancing up the police force, uh, being financially rewarded for it and ultimately getting to to the rank of Chief Superintendent in Strathclyde. And at the same time, he was attending church. And so he tried to maintain his church attendance throughout his police career. But he often found that other projects or other work commitments came up, and so he would attend church as best as he could whenever he had a a spare Sunday morning free. He even helped to lead an Alpha course in his church, so that more people would come to church because he felt like, you know, that's a good thing to do, an honourable thing to do. And yet, through all this, as my dad admits, he was not a Christian. Despite this extremely honourable career in the police and helping people, and despite his church attendance over almost 60 years, he did not know Jesus. And so what changed? What made things different? Well, after I became a Christian when I was 24, I asked my dad if he wanted to attend a Christianity Explored course. And he said, yeah, sure. And in that course, one of the leaders said to him, he said, imagine I was to write down all the things you've done wrong in your life. Imagine I was to take this board here, write down all the things you've done wrong in your life. The things you're not proud of, your your sins, let's say. And we all have them. What would you write on the board, he said. And in that moment, all the good things that my dad had done in the police force, all the church attendances he's marked up pale into insignificance. Because in that moment, he realized he is not good. Only God is good. And the leader said, imagine I was to write all those things that you're not proud of, all those shameful, terrible things that you've done in your life and Jesus comes along and says I will wipe them all away I will do it because with man it is impossible but with God everything is possible how would you respond to that well this is how he responded he trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of his sins, and he was saved that day. And in time, he was working on a, an old cottage renovating a cottage in the west coast of Scotland, and when he finished it, he donated it to the church. It was quite amazing to see a man who had been living for himself that ended up donating a property to the church. Actually, he didn't give it away. He sold it. He sold it for a pound to the church. And I was really struck by that, just how much the Lord had done in his life, transforming him from being a man who thought he was good to realizing that only God is good if you trust in Jesus Christ today and turn from your sins then he will wipe your sins away he will wipe everything you've ever done away and place you in a family the family of God that you then will inherit the kingdom of heaven now all that you have and all that you are is Christ's because of the goodness of God in your life and don't you want that don't you need that in your life? And let us come to him this morning, admitting our need, believing in his work and committing to him. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the fact that you have displayed your goodness to us in sending your son your one and only beloved son, to die on the cross, to take away all of our sins, that we might inherit the kingdom of God through faith in him. Not only that, but we come into a family, the family of God, that we might enjoy that in this life and for all eternity. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to see your goodness in our lives, to turn to you, to not rely on our wealth, to not rely on our goodness, but to trust in you for all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Well, it's been great this morning as to focus on the goodness of God. He is a good God. He is a powerful God. With God, all things are possible. We can save each one of us. Of course, the devil will try and undermine that faith in his goodness, telling us that God is not really good or God is not really powerful. But we see God at work through his people, don't we? Through the goodness of his people, through the, the power of his people. So let me close with some words from, from Ephesians and encourage us as we go into this, this week. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever
1: and ever. Amen.